Simple Beep, episode 51, designed by Apple in California. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany, and Brian is not here this week. So we have joining us a friend of the show, Stephen Hackett from Relay FM and 512 Pixels. Welcome, Stephen. Hey, it's good to be back. Last time we recorded, we were in person together, and now we're not, which is sad. Yeah, and Brian is not here, and you're on the podcast, so we can only assume that he must be deceased this week. That uh, That is the rule of Connected, that if you miss the show, you are uh, deemed. Fortunately, it's only a temporary dead condition. <laughs> I mean, I don't... Science and medicine has really come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for stepping in for the show, and as we get to our topic, we'll see exactly uh, why... why uh, I asked you to come back on this week. Uh, but first, uh, something that you'll appreciate, as always, Stephen, a little bit of follow-up. So our last episode was our grand tour through Dongletown. And uh, <laughs> what turned, uh, what began as an episode pretty much about I.O. and ports turned into all the ways that you connect those things from one to the other and all the crazy adapters that we've had to deal with in some 30 years of Apple and our one piece of follow-up on that goes, yeah, more than 30 years back to the original Mac and a little piece that we got wrong there. So we talked about, I think, is the DB9 connector that the original Macintosh used for its mouse and said, yeah, that that was also what it used for the keyboard. Not so. Listener Jim Wong wrote in and said that the original Mac actually uses the RJ11 connector for the keyboard. And you may know RJ11 better as a standard phone cable, if you still have those in your house and still have devices that use those. And the the reason that we missed this is because it's actually on the front of the original Macintosh. And it's kind of under the chin, like there's a little lip. And if you push the keyboard all the way up against it, you might not even see it. But if you can find an image of an original Macintosh with no peripherals, nothing in front of it, then you'll see that, yeah, there's that phone connector cable there. But in true Apple fashion, despite the fact that it's a standard RJ11 connector, the cable that it used is not a standard phone cable. All of the pinouts are completely different. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so you would expect that, you know, you, how does a cable work? Well, it's got several different wires within the cable. You know, one goes to one, two goes to two, three goes to three. That would be the simplest way of doing it. But instead, for that particular RJ11 connector that... I, that was connected to the original Macintosh keyboard. They scrambled them all up because who knows? Uh, but what a proprietary Apple <laughs> Apple move. I've always found that port really strange uh, because it's on the front. And I guess it came down to, do you want to see it on the front when there's nothing plugged in? Or do you want like a long, another long cable running around from the back? And I guess Steve Jobs liked the shorter cable and, you know, you kind of push the keyboard up and you don't see the port. But you're right. When it's unplugged, it really stands out. It's like, what? Why? What's the story there? Yeah. Why, is, why, why does it have a modem? Well, it doesn't actually. <laughs> but, you know, it looks like a modem port because those would use standard standard phone cable. Yeah. The no, I guess the notion was that that original keyboard had a lot of height to it and would hide it pretty easily. And you said, Stephen, why would you want another cable running to the back? And I think that was one of the things that... I remember it as like a hallmark of classic Mac once they got to ADB just a couple of models later was that they did the daisy chaining where you would have the long wire on the keyboard to the back and then the short wire for the mouse, usually that could be like right-handed or left-handed. Right. And that was something that I think like in the peak Mac versus PC wars was cited as a clear design advantage of 
meant that you didn't have to reach some crazy long mouse cable all the way to the back of a tower just to get your mouse working. Yeah, that even carried on through the USB days. So like the the terrible iMac keyboard and mouse, you know, the hockey puck you guys have talked about, and then the pro keyboard and mouse, like they each had those USB ports on either side as well. And the mouse just came with this little, I mean, on the pro mouse, that cord is maybe six inches long. It's pretty short, just enough to kind of loop up and around. Um, yeah, I always liked that 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 feel and it, it just made it so much nicer and neater and and there even in keynotes where Jobs says, you know, hey, we can put it on either side. Uh, I'm not sure if he was left-handed or not. I want to say that he was, but maybe that's just me projecting. Um, but definitely a little, like a little touch that made the Macintosh a nicer place to be. Yeah, and those uh, daisy chaining USB ports is how I learned about power over USB. The one time that I tried to plug a hard drive into one, I'm like, why is this? Why is this drive not mounting? <laughs> yeah, no good. So that concludes our little bit of follow-up from last episode. And now let's get into our main topic for this episode. And the reason that I wanted to have you on, Stephen, is this is continuing in our theme of talking about the past based on things that Apple has done very recently. And just in the past couple of weeks, Apple released a very expensive book called Designed by Apple in California. And this is a photo book of many Apple pieces of Apple hardware and some of the Apple hardware process and design. This is has been talked about a lot as like the baby uh, or you know pet project of Johnny Ive because it mostly covers his time at Apple. So Stephen, you've talked about this on some other shows. You also put together a little video. You've got the book and you also have many of the things in the book and wrap that all up in a nice little YouTube video that we'll link to in the show notes. But the thing that I mostly want to talk about is, I, you know, you may think, oh, I've heard about this on several other podcasts and now's the time to skip. But I think a lot of the other discussion around this was the question of why, like, why is Apple doing this? And then punditry and prognosticating, what is this going to mean for like the next 10 years of Apple, the fact that they put out this book? Uh, what does it mean for Johnny Ive's career? And I'm not so interested in that. I'm more interested in the what, like what is this artifact and what pieces of Apple history does it convey? Because I, and I imagine many of our listeners, have not actually seen one of these in person because the only way that you can get the book is to drop two or $300 and have Apple ship it to you. Or I believe they're on display in, I think it was like a very select number of Apple stores around the world, like basically just flagship stores. So if I go to my like local mall Apple store here in Michigan, it's just not going to be on a shelf or anything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But maybe if I'm at, uh, you know, fifth Avenue in New York city, they might have one out on a table next to Mac pro or something. Rest in peace, Mac pro. (laughs) So yeah, so the book is super weird. So I have the smaller of the two. Oh, you didn't, you didn't go for the plus size. No, uh, it's super heavy and thick. And in fact, when it showed up, uh, my wife was like, Oh, did you buy a laptop? Uh, cause she knew that I had a MacBook pro coming as well. I was like, well, I did, but this is actually, uh, just a coffee table book, and then she just stared at me for like six minutes straight. But um, it's a super interesting product in and of itself. And I, I use that word very, very much on purpose. It comes in this nice box. The the opening of my video, I'm like pulling the tab open on the box. Um, it's formatted very nicely. It's beautiful. It's like a white linen book unless you make a YouTube video out of it, and then it gets kind of dirty. Uh, nice printing, silver-lined pages. Um, it comes with a separate... And you're going to hear some noise because I'm moving the stuff around on my desk. 
uh, but it comes with a separate uh, kind of an insert or a, a booklet that it doesn't have a a story for every page or every image. But I guess some of the highlights are are outlined here, and, and we can read some of these in a bit because they're all hilarious. Yeah. So this is one of the things that I think people noticed right off the bat was that not just the promo materials, but it looked like the book itself is pretty much devoid of words. It's completely pictorial. And then everyone assumed, okay, well, if that's the decision that they went with, that they're just going to completely own it. But then it turns out that it has this, I guess, companion book. Yeah. Um, the, the the only thing that's actually printed in the book itself, there's the title, there is the dedicated to Steve Jobs line, which I know caused a lot of controversy. And then there's like an eight-paragraph introduction uh, by Johnny Ive. And that's um, – that's it. There's an index, but once you get into the, you know, what you think about, you know, the pictures of the IMAX, all the up in the corner is IMAX, comma 1998, or you know, in-ear headphones, comma 2007. There's no story in the book itself. It's just images with a little tag of text up in the corner to tell you what you're looking at. And for the most part, even though there's some errors. Uh, with the year it came out. Yeah, and page numbers that then reference over to this other other volume. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of interesting. It makes me wonder if there are going to be like localizations of the book <laughs> and they wanted that, oh, we'll just print up separate inserts and the, the main book will be, be all the same. <laughs> but you're right in terms of the packaging. I mean, it very much makes me think of the trend in Apple packaging recently. Um you know, just the opening of the book itself and the tear tabs look very much like, I think, the kind of packaging that I saw when I opened my most recent Apple product, which was an iPad Pro and the case that came with it. You know, the very elegant way of, you know, iconography and clear how you get this thing open. And then the white linen of the book itself, the cover, makes me think of, I believe it was with the iPhone 6 when they changed the box design for iPhones over to be completely white. And it makes you think like, oh, well, you know, the first time that I saw that when saw one of those boxes, I thought, oh, that's kind of like a striking design. That's different. That makes you think that it's just sort of embossed cardboard. And I thought, wait a minute, they didn't have to print anything on that box. And they're going to make hundreds of millions of them, little bits of ink over hundreds of millions. Like, you know, you look at that and you think, oh, this is probably like a, a margins issue. But on this book, the margins are astronomical to begin with i i would imagine they're selling you know books for two or three hundred dollars so the fact that that it's this clean white linen seems to me to be pretty much a pure design choice yeah and there is an apple logo that it's embossed right in the center on the front and then along the spine uh it says i'm turning it over uh it's, it's got the whole title designed by apple in california again that's embossed it's really hard to to make kind of show up in the video um but it definitely feels like a book that Johnny Hive designed, right? Like it's a book with kind of as few features that you can put into a book and it still actually be a book, right? Like if he could do a book without, you know, seams, he would do a book without seams. It's as minimal as you can get. And I kind of see why and I kind of like that. The When you're flipping through it, you're just immersed in these really large, beautiful color photographs and your attention's not being taken away by typeset on the page. You know, it's you're just looking at the images. And then if you want to go read about, you know, whatever you're looking at, you know, maybe like maybe forty five or fifty percent of the stuff has a has a follow up page in the in the little booklet. 
So it's nice. And and you're looking through it, it's just very easy just to get lost to kind of just wander amongst the pages and, and really just focus on what they want you to see. So let's talk a little bit about what is actually contained in those pages and the format of the book. So one of the things that people asked first when this announcement was first made was, okay, Apple's making a historical book. What does it actually cover? So what years and products does it cover and what way are those presented in? Is it pure chronological or is there some editorial license involved? Uh, it is in chronological order. Uh, I don't know if it's even like you know months within a year, but at the very least, at the very least, it's chronological by year. And it does not start. And a lot of articles I've read said this. Well, it starts with the the original iMac, and that's that's not true. It starts very noticeably with the with 1999's slot loading five color iMacs, and I, I think that's super purposeful. There's there's a quote in the Walter Isaacson book where Jobs is presented with the the first, you know, the kind of finished prototype of the iMac. And he basically goes off on Jaws and some other people that the optical drive has a tray. And he's like freaking out. And they're like, no, this is what we showed you. It's very clear that Jobs wanted it to be a slot loading machine. I think we talked about that on the iMac episode we did uh, earlier this year. Yeah. And like, I think the book starts with that computer because Jobs didn't like the fact that the the first couple of iMacs came with tray loading drives. Like I really think when they were putting this together that they like remembered that, right? Like John, John Abbott was like, Whoa, I don't want to relive that conversation. Uh, we're going to start with the five flavors with the slot loading, uh, variant. It's really interesting that that's, um, that's pretty great. Uh, and it ends with the Apple pencil. So it ends in 2015. And so here we are, it comes out in November, of 2016 and none of this year's products are in it. So there's no, well, I guess the only thing new really this year has been the MacBook Pro touch bar. That's not in here. It ends with the, with the Apple pencil, which kind of like if you put those on a spectrum, like a, a, a tangerine, I'm actually three and an Apple pencil are like as far, like there's, there's nothing in common, right? They're, they're as far different as you can get. And that I kind of like, I like that it starts something like heavy and colorful and ends with like this minimal, you know, white pencil with a little chrome uh, loop around it. It's kind of, kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. We took a piece of wood and actually made it out of pure white plastic instead. Right. Look at our minimal design. <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting in terms of, of what it covers. The next thing I was going to ask is, are, are there any conspicuous omissions? And clearly that original iMac, I think that's also interesting because people have said, that the book is in many ways not so much a history of Apple or Apple design, but a history of Johnny Ive and Johnny Ive design. And by cutting straight to the slot-loading G3, I mean, that does cut out a certain portion of his early work. And obviously, anyone who works in any field, whether it's technical, creative, as you progress through your career, you look back on some of the things that you did at the very beginning and you go, my gosh, that was garbage. I don't even want to look at this thing that I, you know, that I wrote 10 years ago or, uh, you know, this code that I wrote five years ago. What nonsense. And so I can appreciate that, that, you know, if he had some editorial control over this, that he wouldn't want it to be just comprehensive and, you know, all the things that he might consider as some of his mistakes. But it's interesting that it doesn't go into the earlier period of the Mac, even though he was involved in some, some ways. Uh, earlier on than 1999 or even 1997. 
Yeah, I mean, there's no e-mate in here, right? Um, Whereas that is actually one of the more interesting, yeah. <laughs> beautiful designs that Apple has done. It was not a particularly great functional product, but it was something that was you know, really a bold design for its time and also clearly related to so many important products that came after it. Totally. Um, as far as other omissions, the other one that really jumps out is the Power Mac G4 line. You know, there's uh, several cases of that. There's the kind of like the blue slate case. It doesn't really have a name. Then there's Quicksilver, and then there's Mirror Drive Door. And the only one I think that's in here is the Quicksilver. I don't think Mirror Drive Door is in the book. Um, I, I may be wrong, but I seem to remember that's only the Quicksilver. And I found that interesting uh, because there's some other machines in here and especially some accessories in here that are really – off the beaten path, like the iPhone 4 bumpers are in here, of all things. That's kind of shocking, to be honest. Yeah, like, oh yeah, remember these? We gave them away for free. One of the things that was featured in your video was the iPod socks, because you very cleverly actually sandwiched them in the book because they fit, and then open it up, and, and they're all, all of the colors of socks. And that's a you know, whimsical, like you said, off the beaten path kind of Apple product, an accessory, a totally unnecessary, untechnological accessory. So it really is there just purely for design's sake. But the iPhone 4 bumpers, that, that was, I mean, that was a product that Apple didn't even want to have to create. And for that to make the cut in here, I mean, forget the tray loading CD drive above the original iMac G3. That's a very interesting choice. Yeah, so flipping through here, I mean, the eMac G4 is in here. Like, it made the cut, but the mirror drive door uh, didn't for some reason. So a couple weird things, you know, uh, but all in all, I would say it's much more complete than I had thought it would it would have been. You know, when I first read about it, you kind of think about, like, the greatest hits, right? You think about some of the, the iMac G4, for instance. You think about, you know, maybe that first aluminum iMac or the first MacBook Air. You think about those sort of headlining designs major generations of ipods right but you don't think about the like one-off white unibody injected plastic macbook which is i've got one they're terrible uh but that's in there it's like it's very for the most part very thorough um you know there were stories and it's been rumored for a long time like in the collection kind of world that apple and people apple have been buying hardware for a while now there's a story that broke Maybe earlier they showed that they were buying software as well. Uh, maybe they couldn't get a mirror drive where they liked. Um, they could have borrowed mine. But <laughs> you know, who, who knows why it's not in there? I just found it interesting. The feeling there's like, oh, that's that's weird. There's there's no, no, just one G4. But, you know, it's not a big deal. It's definitely much more complete than I would have ever guessed. And being a very astute and a knowledgeable collector of these things, you've also found a few places where it's actually just been a little bit incorrect. Yes, I have my notes. Um. <laughs> and I mean, we've we've found this more than once in uh, just in this year as Apple has become more and more retrospective, like with the uh, 40 and 40 video right. that we both went through with fine tooth comb. There were like typos, like, like they spelled Power Mac with, camel case and no space and that hurt me inside so i think these errors are on that same level you know, nothing nothing that's like catastrophic but things that someone who's really paying attention and really sweats the details on this stuff will notice yeah so they're they're 
there are two notable ones. Uh, the first one I called out in the in the video on the the page for the Power Mac G5. They have several iterations of it. So that there was like a single processor version, uh, dual processor version. There was a liquid cooled one, which like God have mercy on you if you if you bought one of those. That's a PC thing, <laughs> oh, dude. Mopar built some of those parts, which is like a little Mopar uh, emblem stamped on the side of the metal. But the bottom of the page, there are two Mac Pro designs. And what really kills me about that, so it's labeled Power Mac G5, you know, 2003 to 2006. Well, the Mac Pro was after that. But here's the thing that in the booklet, what the booklet says about it. Designed for flexibility over time, the Power Mac G5 interior evolved with each generation to optimize performance, expansion, and efficiency while retaining the same basic exterior structure. So I see where they were getting at that, oh, we... um. We have this case, and we reuse it a bunch. A cheese grater is a cheese grater, no matter what you put inside of it. Right. Plus, you were probably swapping out all your parts every three months anyway, because you're some kind of crazy pro user. Yeah, or you know, your power supply died in your G5 and cooked the processors. But they should have named the page Power Mac G5 Mac Pro 2003 to 2013. Uh, but they didn't. And it's like, I was looking through it, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, the other one, and this one I find more forgivable but perhaps more interesting as well is that the iPad is labeled as a 2009 product and it of course was introduced in January of 2010 and then shipped I think in March or April of that year so you know that, that's pretty close um, maybe the design work was all done in 2009 or maybe it was just uh, an error but uh, those are the two that I that I found there, there may be more but if you're publishing something, is like this is not a third party thing. Like if, if I did this book and I had some errors in it, that's understandable. I would correct them, but they're not my products, right? Like I didn't make them. I didn't design them. They, Apple did. And assuming they had a bunch of people working on this thing, like it's a super beautiful product. Um, but these errors made it through. And like I'm sure the people out there rolling their eyes as I'm talking, but like if you buy this book, you buy it because of what it is as like a historical record by Apple about Apple and you would expect it to be correct. A definitive record. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, in 50 years, um, when they find me dead in my studio and they are cleaning it out, they're going to find this book and you know, my grandkids gonna be like, Oh, look, the iPad came out in 2009 and that's what he's going to believe. And he's going to be wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting with the iPad. Obviously, the iPad was in the works for many years before it came out. The famous stories of that it was in development before the iPhone and the switch and track that, oh, we need to have a, a phone product first. And obviously that was an incredibly smart decision on Apple's part that now we have 10, we're coming up on 10 years of iPhone and only, only seven years of the iPad. And if those had been reversed, Apple Apple wouldn't be out of business. They wouldn't be doomed, but their fortunes would be somewhat different than they are today. So maybe that maybe that can be our excuse for them is that they were really working on the iPad for, for a long time. They thought it was done sooner than it was. But on that same note, since I haven't been able to flip through all the pages of the book, I think there's maybe like five or six spreads that are available on the product page on Apple's website, and that's all I've seen. Um, so are there any like prototype products that are included in this or is this all finished products that shipped plus manufacturing process? 
So there's kind of three categories. You name two of them. One, like finished product shots, like you would expect on the Apple PR page. Then there are the the tools. So there's one of this big uh, gear with teeth in it that they stuck down inside the Mac Mini to carve out the the inside of the Mac Mini. It's kind of cool. But then there's also this third category of images. And in fact, two of my favorite images fall in this category where it is a prototype, but it's what it the product would be, right? It's not like an engine, an engineering prototype, which you've never seen one of those. Um, they still use them, you know, sometimes like uh, completely clear, like Mac SE shows up on eBay. But they do that um, for like engineering testing. So you will have like a, a you know, like a three-inch thick a notebook with a logic board and stuff in it as they're kind of debugging the hardware. That stuff's not in here, but but there are some interesting things. So one of them is a picture of the original iPhone, and I'm gonna I'm gonna find in the booklet um, what they say about it. Um, uh, so it's it's what they call an antenna concept test model. So it's it's you're looking at the back of it, but instead of that uh, metal and black back, it's all wrapped in copper. And they say uh, the test model was wrapped in copper tape to simulate the conductive materials in the final design. So the backing wasn't done, but they wanted to see how the antennas would behave when encased in metal. So it's just like – it's actually really gorgeous like iPhone but just covered in strips of copper tape. It's really uh, pretty nice. But one of my all-time favorites – and this one floated around uh, on the web some – is of a prototype Apple Watch. Um, there are a lot of Apple Watch images in this book. Like it's kind of an uncomfortable amount, but there's a picture of the of this board, and I don't know how big it is. I mean, it, an area it's probably five times bigger than the face of an Apple Watch. And what you see is you see the back of the Apple Watch with the sensors, and you see it's all sitting embedded in a logic board. You see the S1, you see the screen, uh, you see. Uh, what is a little stub for what would become the digital crown. And there are the two buttons. And instead of like the nice side buttons that we have on the watch, they're just like screwed on to this logic board. So it's, it's a, it's an Apple watch, but kind of only in two dimensions. This is completely spread out as they're assumingly debugging the hardware. And I love that image because this is the kind of stuff I want to see more of in this book of things like, that I can't download from Apple's PR website, things that only Apple can show us. And, you know, we know this stuff exists. We know they prototype. We know they debug. But we never see uh, what that actually looks like. And, and we get these two examples in here of, of you know, a look into this world. And this Apple Watch, I mean, it, it looks kind of hilarious because down in the corner is the screen and it's got the little honeycomb app interface. But it's just, it's just like on this LCD screwed into this logic board. It's not. There's no finish. There's no stainless steel. There's no aluminum. There's no watch bands. It's just this like, you know, kind of four by six inch board with all this stuff on it. It's fascinating. Yeah, that does make you think about like really early Apple, like you know, Apple ones and early Apple two prototypes, where everything was just like these open cases and just like run a wire from here to there. Exactly. It would be great to see more of that and for some of that to be you know open for, to those of us who aren't dropping hundreds of dollars on the book one of my questions was along the lines of what you just mentioned so how does it compare to just a really good archive of apple pr photos especially since i imagine that pretty quickly as you move through the book chronologically you get into the era where 
you might actually be able to go get PR photos of those products still on Apple's website live, or there's a good chance that they were archived by someone else uh, while they were live, you know, just five, 10 years ago. So how does it stack up that way? And like what percentage of the book feels like this, this new exciting stuff, even if it's pretty low? There are definitely some products that all you get are sort of like the Apple PR style shots. Like I mentioned the Power Mac G4 earlier. Um, a lot of the MacBooks, the MacBook Pros, you only get sort of that style. But I would say, you know, probably the majority of products have some sort of manufacturing image. So there's, uh, for instance, uh, the pages with the iPhone 3G, you see them from the front and the back. And then the next spread is it opened up. So you take the screws out and it kind of opens up like a car hood. That's really nice because you don't get to see that sort of stuff. But then just a few pages later, you're looking at an iPod Nano and you don't get to see the inside of it or you don't get to see the manufacturing. It's just like pretty iPods on a, on a white page. Um, so it's 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 really kind of mixed in. But um, I, I like the kind of see-through ones. One of my favorite spreads is the uh, LED cinema display. And on the right si- side of the page is the normal press shot. And it's printed all the way to the edge, like full bleed into the crease of the book. And on the other side, they've taken the screen and the glass off. So you see the back case and the power supply. It's kind of a nice, like kind of uh, inside and then outside view right together. Yeah, that's clever. That's using the medium in a way that just, uh, you know, a tiff from Apple.com is not going to give you the same effect. Exactly. And and so I... um. Man, I would I would have liked to see more of that sort of stuff because I'm really interested in how this stuff gets put together. But I think they did a good job in justifying it over just spending an afternoon on the Wayback Machine, um, you know, downloading downloading images. Cool. So one last thing that I want to talk about the book and its place in history rather than its place in the present and the future is the name of the book. And I think that the name doesn't surprise us, but I haven't really thought critically about this phrase, the designed by Apple in California phrase. And I was trying to trace back earlier today the history of its use. We now know that it it, it pretty much shows up, I think it mostly shows up on packaging of current products. And so you'll see it somewhere, mostly in like your unboxing process for, for a new device. Uh, I'm not sure how many devices actually have it in a, visible place on the device themselves. And so I was trying to trace back when it actually started. And it seems like it started around the time of the first iPod, but I haven't been able to verify that. And because it's tricky, because a lot of the time you need to find pictures of original packaging and often like bottom of the original packaging. I did find one where it was, I think it was like a third or fourth generation iPod box. And it's got the sticker on it that's got like the barcodes and the, you know, M slash model number and all of that. And it's printed in just like junky industrial font. Like it's not designed at all. And then it says underneath the barcode in this pixely font designed by Apple in California. And so it was there at that point. And then the first time that Apple used this as a more public in a more public way, seems like was a few years ago at WWDC 2013, where they premiered a video, one-minute video, that then also ran as a TV ad and apparently got 
extremely poor reviews uh, from consumers and ad critics alike. Uh, and that was also called Designed by Apple in California. And it's a montage of people using Apple devices and a voiceover saying how Apple puts all this care into their devices. And then the line at the end is, this is our signature. And then the words designed by Apple in California come up over the end of the video montage. So it is something that has been part of their corporate culture in an overt way, at least for the past few years. But then there's a the question of just how far back it goes. There are some other things that are similar phrases, um, like there was the line of Apple design products, like the Apple design speakers and some other peripherals that were in the like mid to late nineties. And that's Apple design with camel case. Actually in the, in this instance, uh, it is no space camel case. Uh, and so that kind of pairing of words has been around for, for some time. Yeah. You know, I think it's on like the bottom of like the Mac pro. I think it's on the foot of the iMac, but you're right. It's not something they, emblazoned across you know the the top of a macbook pro but it's uh i don't have a problem with the phrase i understand why that ad didn't go over well like it's it's the same reason this book hasn't gone over well in some circles that it feels really snooty and kind of self-involved yeah and the and the you know the obvious pragmatic comparison is well designed by apple in california built where you know built by who in china right and um you know especially when a few years ago when there were bigger stories about you know, possible serious problems with Apple's supply chain and manufacturing in China and human rights. That was something that people could easily jump on. I think 2013, the time of that video was right around that time. So I could see how people could, you know, could make that contrast and really exaggerate it. Yeah. In the Mac Pro introduction video, they're laser etching it on the bottom of the Mac Pro and then the laser moves over and it says uh, made in the USA. Like that was, they they kind of addressed that head on that machine that it is, uh, you know, it, the components are at least assembled in Texas uh, for the three Mac Pros, I guess that they sell. <laughs> well, it's 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 a handmade bespoke process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's one guy. Um, so there are, you know, there are instances of Apple kind of dealing with that. But yeah, it's 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 a phrase that's been around. It's the per- I think it's the perfect name for the book. Um, but uh, but yeah, it does have some baggage, I think. So to wrap up, let's talk about some similar projects that have happened in the past and one that is hot off the presses, thanks to you. Um, so we were just mentioning the, uh, the phrase Apple design. There is a book by that name. Uh, I believe it's now out of print and a little bit of a collector's item in and of itself. It's from 1997, according to Amazon. It's called Apple Design, the work of the Apple Industrial Design Group. And in a very similar vein, it's, uh, you know, it's a phototype book. I think that it has a lot more of the, you know, writing within the book itself. I do not have one of these. Do you have a copy of Apple Design? I have a copy that's on the way, actually. A, uh, a reader in Tokyo, of all places, had one, and we worked it out where... Um, they're shipping it to me. So like right now, open deliveries and it has no idea where it is, uh, hopefully on the way from, from Japan. Somewhere over the Pacific. Yeah, but this book is interesting. So it was done by an outside group, but they had like complete access to Apple and to its employees to create it. So I think, I think I'm think i looking forward to, to flipping through that. Um, 
I do have another one, though, called So Far, and it is a book that was like this book, the new one, uh, put out by Apple, and it was put out uh, on the company's um, 10-year anniversary, so in 1987, and it has some design stuff, but it also has a lot about like a lot of copy in it about marketing and philosophy, and um, it's a whole mix of things. Um, so I've got, I've got that one as well. The subtitle of that book is The First Ten Years of a Vision, and the cover is like a water droplet in a pond. So yeah, yeah kind of, I think definitely verging towards the philosophical there. And of course, that makes sense for 1987 Apple, you know, a couple of years off off of the Mac introduction, very much in the bicycle for the mind era, mm-hmm. uh, definitely of its time. Totally. And one that has gotten a lot of attention, drawn a lot of comparisons just in the past couple of weeks is Iconic by Jonathan Zufi. And if you're a longtime listener, you'll remember that he joined us Geez, almost almost two years ago on the show is episode 15, where we talked to him about the process of creating this book that is a coffee table book of Apple products, again, done totally on the outside of Apple. Um, some really interesting stories in there, how he was not even, you know, like, he's not like a professional photographer. He learned a lot along the way. And like you do, Stephen, where you collect these things, he had to actually source, where am I going to borrow one of these to shoot where am i going to buy these off of ebay and then try to like arbitrage them back to you know break even and and get my photos out of them uh, but it did put together a really remarkable collection of photos of apple hardware and it goes you know, from the beginning it goes all the way um to like the the i think the inside of the like the inside covers have circuit diagrams and then like a uh, hand-wrapped uh, circuit board in the back inside cover, which is just like spaghetti madness. So like really, really prototype. And he did seek out some of these prototypes, um, rare models like that wacky uh, multicolored uh, PowerBook, like basically like first generation. It was like PowerBook 190 that was for, I think it was some marketing deal and it was in all yeah. crazy colors instead of, instead of dark gray. Um, some really interesting stuff in there. And one of the things I think is interesting, I have uh, my copy here and I was flipping through it in comparison to the new offering from Apple is that Iconic is organized. In, it's organized in chapters by type of device. And so it has, you know, desktops, laptops, iDevices, as it calls them, um, peripherals, and and then a separate section for prototypes, which makes it easier to dig into the history of a particular piece or, you know, to follow a single thread through a particular product line, which I think is a different and interesting way to look at this history. Yeah, I actually, I think I prefer the way Iconic is laid out so you can... It kind of stages in the, within one family, but uh, but it's, it's just a different take. Yeah, and it also does a lot of that playing with the medium and the photography and the bookbinding process. You know, I, I just opened up to a spread here that's like two really close detail macro shots of what I think is a cheese grater case, and it's almost like abstract art. Where I don't think that there's quite as much of that in the uh, designed by Apple 
book where it's more trying to like show kind of show a product as a whole. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's nothing real artsy about the photography in Apple's book. It's very kind of matter of fact and business-like. Yeah. And just looking at now the cover of Iconic, going back to what we were talking at the top of the show and follow up about that port on the original Mac. So the cover of Iconic has the original Macintosh on the front of the book and it's off center and it just goes off the edge a little bit so that the port does not appear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've got a different, I've got a really early edition of it. So my, my covers are different from yours, but um, it's a, it's a nice book and it's so much cheaper than Apple's. If you're, if you're looking for a holiday gift for somebody, uh, iconic, I, I can't recommend uh, highly enough. And and how about this the, the Apple one? You get get your money's worth with Iconic instead. I think so. I mean, I think if you if you if you want a book about this stuff, I would buy Iconic first uh, every day of the week. Cool. We'll, we'll definitely link to the Iconic website and Jonathan's website. He's working on some totally unrelated projects now, but uh, is a great guy and definitely definitely uh, encourage supporting his work. And speaking of supporting people's work, that brings us back to you, Stephen. Uh, as we record this, uh, you have just put out a little book of your own. Um, a, a little book, a digital book. It does not weigh, it, it does not have uh, fancy white linen or silver <laughs> edges, but it does, it is available in both PDF or on the iBook store. And it's called Aqua and Bondi. Bondi. I, I did it. There you go. Australians will get to you. It's true. So this is a little a little history book that you've put together that uh, leverages some of the objects in your collection and also talks a little bit more about uh, like the personal history and software of Apple. Yeah, so I, I came off of the iMac G3 project kind of in the spring and the summer. You know, we got to spend like two hours with y'all, did it two hours of upgrade and did it, wrote a bunch about the machines themselves. But the iMac G3 is only like one half of a story. So, you know, Jobs came back, listeners of the show will know. Uh, Copeland was a project to basically modernize the Mac OS. It failed in the most spectacular fashion, and they were left without a modern OS. And so they went and shopped around. They almost bought B. They ended up buying Next and bringing Steve Jobs back. I would argue the most important acquisition in all of technology history um probably by far so it's 97 you know 98 they try rhapsody which was um kind of the the elevator picture rhapsody was you can run your classic mac apps but they don't get any of the good stuff they don't get preemptive multitasking or anything like that uh to get that stuff you need to write new apps in objective c in coco and that did not go over well with the likes of Adobe or Microsoft or really any Mac developer. You know, this was like two years, a year and a half after Copeland. They were still burned from getting stuff up and running on a new OS to have it pulled out from under them. And the community basically said no. And so Apple went back and developed a plan for what we now know as Mac OS X, which was classic. You had Mac OS apps and a Mac OS virtual machine. And then you had Objective-C and Coco, but then you had something in the middle called Carbon. And basically Carbon would uh, – you would run your your native or your kind of original Mac OS apps through the Carbon data, this program Apple made. And they said, okay, you're using 130 APIs that uh, we are depreciating in Carbon. But if you get rid of them, and so if you move on to this subset of APIs from the classic Mac OS, we can give you preemptive multitasking and memory protection. 
probably the best engineering decision made at Apple. And other than having iOS or iPhone OS be based on the mock kernel and OS 10, like this is up there. Like it is super important. Carbon is really what made this, what made the whole thing possible. So that's a really interesting story, right? But what's, what the book is built around is that those two things took place at the same time. And my argument is if the iMac G3 hadn't been as successful as it was and hadn't breathed new life and, and more importantly brought capital into the, into the company so they could do these other products, like that stuff bankrolled Rhapsody and the Mac OS X. And I always thought about those two processes as divorced from each other, but they were happening at the same time, like down to the degree that Aqua really looks best on like five flavor iMacs because it's like this big bright yellow stoplight button and hey, I'm on a bright orange iMac and it kind of all drives together. Um, so the book talks about both those things, talk about the iMac, talk about the software story. I dip into why Apple was so doomed in the 90s and like how they were so bad off because a lot of people say that but don't really understand what happened. So I talk about that. Um, ended up being 80 pages. Uh, it's not 80 full pages of text. There's lots of photos in it. It's an easy read. But... Um, yeah, I'm glad it's out there. I launched it, was, it launched like this morning. I slept for two hours last night or something. So uh, <laughs> I should let you go and go, yeah, go to I'm, bed. I'm done. Uh, but yeah, so it's super fun and uh, it's available now, and hopefully people are enjoying it. Yeah, just paging through it as as you were talking there, it's interesting. Definitely, there's stuff in here that even I, as someone who is into this stuff didn't remember quite exactly the details, especially some of that like early OS project stuff, like pink and intelligent, like these yeah. pro- projects that I maybe never heard of, um, but actually played, you know, important roles in Apple kind of screwing up in the way that they screwed up very successfully into OS 10. And then just paging through the book from the first chapter through to the end, uh, because it kind of goes old Apple, IMAX, Aqua, like just like standing back and squinting, you see this progression from beige to color. Yeah. <laughs> and then from color to blue and white. And it's interesting to take that and kind of tack it on to any of these like visual chronological looks at Apple. Like we were talking about the uh, Designed by Apple book where it goes from like it starts off with the big bright colors and then it ends on the pencil. It's just like pure white, you know, paint painted all white. Um, and that's definitely a big arc in Apple's design and their design language, both in hardware and software, but it's not the entire arc of it. And there are interesting pieces that go before that, that get from black and white to beige to platinum to the iMac and all the way up to the present. Yeah, you can when you step back you can really see those broad strokes. And I think a lot of people walked away from the designed in California book saying that oh, you know there's a lot of like the uh, the whimsy is the word I like to use, the whimsy, the fun out of, of Apple's hardware is like that's been stripped away, right? You we went from like these orange and green and blue computers and now everything's just like various shades of gray and maybe gold. That's not untrue, right? Um, both design languages are good. Uh, you know, you might have a preference one way or the other, but you can see that evolution uh, in the Apple book. And it's something that um, that really struck me when working on mine. It's like Apple has these big story arcs in its history. And there's the, the ultimate one, right, of 
great success in the eighties, like in the pits of despair in the nineties and then back on top. It's kind of like the world's greatest comeback story. It's, it's definitely the world or the, the best comeback story in like American business. But the reasons for all of that is like where people like us get so interested, right? They're like, well, wh- how, why, why did this decision get made? Or like what went into this product or why, why did this shift happen? And walking away from Apple's book left me hungry for that. Um, now my book was basically finished when Apple announced theirs. Uh, it's been in like the editing process for a while. Like you read through it, uh, and provided notes. So thank you. Um, but like there's room for everything, but I, I wish Apple had taken advantage of its own history and, and given us a story about why these decisions were made. And, and the booklet they provide is very technical. It sounds like Johnny Ive wrote it. Like when you read it, I at least read it in his voice in my head <laughs> um, because it's all about the procedure and the process. And that's fine. And it's, it's interesting, like how they cut out the Mac Pro out of a little coaster of aluminum and extrude it. Like that's, that's interesting. But like why did you – like, why did you change form factors? Like, why did you think going to this crazy dual GPU system that isn't panning out? Like, that's what I want to know. And I think all this book does is wet my appetite for that more. And I'm hoping that 10 years, 15 years, as these people start retiring, we get some of this stuff and we get some of these stories. Like now it's so easy to read every single thing about the Apple II because a bunch of those people have been gone from Apple for a long time and they want to tell their story and the people like you and I who will sit down and interview them endlessly. And so we know all that stuff, but there's this black box now and, and this book opens that door a little bit, but it doesn't open it enough for what I wanted. Um, and, uh, and it's fine. It's, it's their, it's their project, but it, it, there's definitely something to be said for the kind of the depth of this book versus the depth of some other projects. Well, thank you for uh, giving those of us who are not about to sink the $300 on it a, a little <laughs> bit of a tour and a little bit of that context. Um, I presume that went down as a business expense. <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> those of us who are more on a budget, like we said, we recommend Iconic. And if you are hungry for more Apple history, uh, definitely go get Stephen's book, Uh it will set you back far, far less than Apple's book <laughs> and and will actually teach you a little bit more about the history of Apple. Yeah, someone tweeted me earlier. They were like, the book's $296 cheaper and has uh, 260 times the words. Like, thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> what a value. I know. <laughs> so I imagine that the link to the book we'll put it in the show notes and is also prominently on your website, which is 512pixels.net. And of course, can also find you over at relay.fm, any anywhere else that people should go. That's all there is. <laughs> I guess you're all you're also on Twitter. I am on Twitter. I'm at ISMH on Twitter. Um usually complaining about something, so you can find me there as well. All right, very good. Uh you can find links for all the things that we talked about in the show on our website. Uh, simplebeep.com slash episodes, or you may have them right there in your podcast app as you listen. If you want to get in touch with us and leave feedback, you can do that on our website as well, or find us on Twitter. The show Twitter is at simple underscore beep. I'm also on Twitter at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks again, Stephen, for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me back. And we'll see you next time. Adios.